Okay, if your Bibles, could you take them and turn to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3. The past couple of weeks in our Sunday morning services, we have mostly been looking at the subject of patience. We've called it the waiting game. We've looked, say, the last three weeks on what it means to wait on the Lord. And really waiting on the Lord in all sorts of circumstances. Today we're going to switch gears a little bit and look at what does it mean to be patient with people? What does it mean to be patient with each other? And I've asked Larry Laraga to come up and read for us uh, Colossians 3. He'll begin in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Thank you, Larry. So, to begin this morning, just simple question. Are you a patient person? Would those that are closest to you describe you as a patient person? Before you answer too quickly, can I remind you that you are in church? And for some reason, when growing up, like that was like the worst, the lie in church. So I'm not sure the theology behind it, but it seemed really, really bad to do that. So another just by way of reminder before we answer the question, am I a patient person? Just this past week might have invited some things into your life. So you might have dealt with traffic this past week. You might have gone shopping this past week. You might have encountered family members this week. Can I ask the question again? In light of all that, are you a patient person? Would others describe you as being patient? I want to talk about that. I want us to think about it a little bit this morning. I read this definition of impatience, and it's, it's a little narrow, and I understand that, but it's, it's very helpful. This is given by Jerry Bridges. He says this, impatience is a strong sense of annoyance at the usually unintentional faults and failures of others. Strong sense of annoyance at the usually unintentional faults and failures of others. 
He goes on to say, it is most often expressed verbally in a way that tends to humiliate the person or persons. It's often expressed verbally in a way that tends to humiliate the person or persons. What does impatience look like? So on the ground. Well, there are many varieties of this. And and we're only going to look at a a small slice of that. What I'm talking about today is largely low-grade impatience. Certainly it can go uh, catastrophic. I mean, it can be filled with, you know, violence and anger and rage. And my goodness, if that is where you're living, then please let's let's talk more because that's not okay to live in, in those places. But for many in the room, I would imagine it doesn't necessarily hit that kind of high violent activity. It's just low grade, low grade impatience. Maybe it's never, you know, the impatience you express, it doesn't terminate friendships. It doesn't totally destroy relationships, at least not what you can tell. But it's there. Maybe it's nonverbal. I wonder how many expressions of impatience were communicated non-verbally with a, did you get any of those this weekend? Did you give any of those this weekend? They're pretty good communicators, right? I wonder how many eyes are rolled communicating, I can't believe you're such an idiot. I wonder, as we communicate, I wonder, do you you have these quick actions that show you're just not happy with, with what's going on or, or storming off or cutting people off, not letting something go. And maybe it's become such a part of you that even as I ask, are you an impatient person, you would, you would say no, but all those around you would go, yeah, they're impatient. I wonder if we can dig into that a little bit. This morning, impatience is so often directed at the people. Have you noticed this? It's so often directed at the people closest to us. So while we, we might pretend, we might get the energy to pretend in front of others, those closest to us, when the guard is down, the filter is off, impatience often is the way we kind of trade in getting things done. Family sees it, coworkers see it, people that are stuck with us see it. It's directed toward people closest to us. It's also, though, isn't it often directed at people that are anonymous to us? So we may never know their name, or at least we may not care to know their name. It could be a store clerk, a waitress, people in customer service where our buttons are pressed and we're, we're done with it all. And we begin to, either verbally or non-verbally, show we're impatient. Sometimes impatience travels down the well-worn paths. You know, you, you can see it coming. I mean, we got Christmas season coming up and maybe your family wasn't here for Thanksgiving, but they're, they're coming and you just know, you know, this set of circumstances, that individual, and there's no way you can get around not seeing them, not being around them. You just know the dominoes are going to fall and you are going to be pressed. And it will be a choice of patience or impatience. Or sometimes we see it coming. Sometimes it surprises us. Where did that come from? I I normally don't act that way. I normally don't get that mad about things. I normally don't, don't respond in that way. Where did that come from over time? Yeah, it seems like such a small deal. Okay, so I'm a little impatient here, a little impatient there. This is one of those deals that I, I really do think over time it can define us, become a part of who we really are. And see, no one sets out to, to be that guy or that lady. No one at 10-year-olds at age 10 says, you know, when I'm 70, I hope everybody around me thinks of me as impatient. Nobody sets out to do that. Nobody thinks that's where their life's going. 
It's one of these things that just gets camouflaged in our life that we, that we, don't, we don't really know. Nobody wants to be the impatient coworker, the impatient kid, the impatient student, the impatient man or woman, impatient roommate, impatient uncle or aunt. No one wants to become that person. And yet, I think if we don't give some attention to it, it will easily, like those, those seeds will begin to grow in our lives. As I've searched my heart, it isn't really hard for me to see some core strands of like, where does that impatience start? This is where it starts with me. Maybe you resonate. When someone upsets my plans for comfort, control, or pleasure, very easy for me to get impatient. I thought I was in control of it. Then, oh, I guess I'm not in control. Oh, and you're saying you're in control. I may not verbalize all that in my head, but that is the reflex. When I think I've got just everything is comfortable, this is exactly the way I want it. I made arrangements to be comfortable. I, I made arrangements for this particular pleasure, and I, I, I planned on it, and I thought it would just be like just this, and then, and then you showed up. And then the impatience begins to rise. Whether you do it un, unintentionally or intentionally, when you upset my plans for comfort, control, or pleasure, or, or when you don't conform to an ideal I had. So I have this certain ideal like, this is the way life should be, and I don't know why you're not behaving according to this ideal when I have this encounter, when I have this waiter or waitress, when I have this particular checkout experience. This is the way it should be every single time. Not that hard. Let's just have this every single time. But when that doesn't, like when, when the world doesn't conform to my ideal, it's easy for me to get impatient. And because I have impatience issues, I also have correspondingly with that, I justify my impatience. And likely you do too. Likely we say, well, the reason I'm impatient is because of this, that, or the other. I mean, why would I ever think it's okay to communicate to my family members the way I do if I didn't have some justification? Why would you ever think it's okay to either with your thumbs or with a keyboard you type out something that is just tearing someone down, totally meant to humiliate them. Why would we do that if we didn't think, well, you know, I'm just going to say this because I'm tired of this. We have all these justifications whereby we say our impatience is totally understandable and excusable. You know, I deserve better, and so I respond with impatience. It's just who I am. It's just how I'm wired, it, and you've got to deal with it because that's just how I am. And we make, the, we make the excuses. You know, I've done way too much. I've tried way too hard for, for this to go that way. And frankly, I'm a little ticked off that it, it went that way, and the impatience begins to mount. I shouldn't have to put up with this. This impacted me. I don't like it, and I'm justified in responding to you with a sigh, with a dirty look, with a snide comment, with something that will chop you down. I'm justified in that because you should not have acted that way. I won't work toward resolution. I won't overlook. I won't forgive. Although the Bible says to suffer long, I will not suffer long. I will suffer nothing. I am frustrated and I'm going to deal with it. You'll know that I'm unhappy. I'll be disappointed. I'll be willing to create distance and divide. And you may not even know it, but I promise you I will not cut you any slack the next time you pull that. And in our mind, we think, you know, and that's just the way it is. What I found even in this week is impatience is just this hard weed to kill. Like you think you got it, and then it just springs up here. And you think you've dealt with that, and it springs up here. Opportunities to be impatient come in all shapes and sizes. 
So what will help us? What will help drive the way we think and the way we feel? What can change us to be more like Jesus? I mean, there, there's some simple solutions, right? Like, so, some breathing techniques. I imagine this could be very helpful. I imagine if you counted to 10 more often, you'd probably say less stupid stuff. M- myself included. I don't know that those are going to change our heart. I don't, even th- I don't think mind tricks, a little alteration here, a little tweak here, a little adjustment there will change my heart. And then see, you know, back in 2015, I was impatient. But now I just learned this mind trick. I don't think it's that simple. I think we need something to go on inside of us to change us from the inside out. We need an overhaul. I'm going to need God to rewire my heart to set me on a course of patience with people. When we try to deal with impatience, my starting point is often like the other person. So I would be a much more patient driver. These other fools would get off the highway. It's, just, it's very simple. I'd be a, a, a much more patient family member if my, if my family would just conform to the reality that I have, that I make up in my mind. When we try to deal with patience, we start in the wrong place when we think, Like others are the key to it all. Like if they would just, then I wouldn't have this problem. But what if there was a different different starting point? So Larry read this earlier. I want to take us back to it. Look at verse 1 again in Colossians 3. I hope you still have it open. So we're thinking, okay, where's the starting point? If I can't just start with, well, you just need to behave, and then I'd do a lot better. I wouldn't lose my temper nearly so often. Let's flip that a little bit and hear Colossians 3 and verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, your life, your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What if we started with a different different starting point? What if we took a fresh look at God, and God then reset our vision for what we really see, what really, really matters to us. This isn't a mind trick. What if our whole vision changed? Here is my conclusion after thinking about this a lot for the past week. I am impatient about few things that really matter for eternity. Most of what I'm impatient about really doesn't matter for eternity. Most of what I get easily irritated by. It really doesn't matter five minutes from now. Five weeks from now. So you read Colossians 3 and it begins to reset because it's going to end telling us we ought to be patient with each other, but it starts with just reset your vision, reset what you see because you have new life with Christ according to verse 1. And because you've been raised with Christ, you set your sights on the realities of heaven. Raise them up, not things on this earth. Then it tells us, set your sights on things that are in heaven, like, you know, where, where Christ is at the right hand of honor of God. So when I begin to think about the throne of God, when I begin to think of the realities that will matter for eternity, when I read verse 3 and says, this is what life is. You've died, but your real life is hidden with Christ in God, and he is your life. This is life. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 
when I begin to think about verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, and he's appearing in glory to the whole world. Those are the things that matter. Five weeks from now, they'll matter. Five years from now, they'll matter. Fifty years from now, they'll matter. This brief encounter that's frustrating to me, it won't matter for eternity. My heart has to really grip this hard. Because there are those, like, every family has them, right? The quirks in the family. (laughs) Just that one family member, like, why do you say that? Why do you have to do that? And easily we become impatient. The traffic that irritates me, I think God does allow for a little irritation on I-95 traffic. But I mean, everything excessive, right? No, seriously, I'm in the store clerk that can't seem to get things right. The person who cuts ahead five minutes from now, will this even matter? What's happening in that moment is, yeah, my, my control is getting blocked. My comfort is getting interrupted. People are not conforming to the deal, the ideal I have. But then there is heaven. There is eternity. And all of that matters. There is living with Jesus. My life is wrapped up in him. Not in some department store, grocery store, stoplight. My life is wrapped up with him. There are things that will come up around a family dinner long after I'm gone. So I, was, I was reminded that even at Thanksgiving. So we went to Shauna's family in, in central Pennsylvania and we're having conversations about her grandfather with one of her uncles. And it just remi- it reminds you, like, there's some things that matter, the things you do, the things that you'll be remembered by. There's things that matter. And then there's a host of things that really, really don't. There are so many ways in which God is calling on me to lift my sights to him and to those realities. Impatience can seem so silly when we begin to lift our eyes and we have that kind of vision. Two girls that shall remain nameless, I overheard arguing. And here was the argument. They were arguing about the plot line of a Disney Junior episode that I think lasts about 23 minutes without commercials. And there was profound disagreement as to how this plot line really went and which character did what. And then I go back and forth and back and forth and what you're wanting. It's a cartoon. It really doesn't matter. It won't matter. Even if you're right, even if you're it won't matter. It won't matter. It doesn't matter. You can hear me verbalize this. It's good therapy for me. But in the minute, in the minute, I think the, I'm the one arguing about cartoon stuff. I'm that impatient as well. I think of the arguments that I must win, little comments I make to make sure that I win, or that at least I communicate, yeah, that that just irritates me. Take a step away, and the next time you're thinking or feeling, or even like your body, I mean, your whole body can get engaged in impatience and irritation. Like, it's, it's telling you, let's just go there. It could be very beneficial to count to 10. Take a deep breath. But here we are. We are followers of Jesus Christ. Could we lift our eyes and say, Christ is life. This is what life's all about. When I start with God, it has a way of resetting my vision. Now, 
Instead of looking at others like they're the problem, I begin to look up to God and say, what are you doing here? But, but there's another, another place I can look before I look outward, and that is actually I can look in the mirror, I can look at myself, and when I get a fresh look at myself, that will regularly drive me to humility. So when I take a, a fresh look at God, it makes me like lift my eyes, it resets my vision, but when I take a fresh look at myself, it drives me to humility. And that may be some of the more painful but very fruitful work we can do. We have to take a step back. And, and even according to this passage, we have to look at, at who we are and how the Bible speaks of who we are. So in Colossians chapter 3, after telling us to lift our eyes up to heaven, verse 5 says, then put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death the sexual immorality, the impurity, the passion, the evil desire and covetousness. Put these things away, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. Put these things away. It's evil lurking in you, so you have to make a conscious effort to put those things away. Now, in my life with Christ, I begin to get a good picture of who I am. And there are things lurking inside my heart, and they're not pretty. And God calls on us to put them to death. Christians, now we, we, of all people, should not be the ones getting on a high horse, thinking we've arrived. As Paul's saying to the church at Colossians, there are things inside of you. Just look inside. You want to get impatient with others? Look inside. The slander, the malice that is there on a moment's notice, the evil desire, the immorality. That's where we live now, but, but what if we back up? What, what about before we knew Christ? This, this passage addresses that too. It says in verse 7, in all these things, you once walked in those. You were living in them. And God's wrath comes on account of those sorts of things. So if Christ hadn't intervened taking God's wrath on himself, this is, this is, why, this is why you would be justly, righteously punished because this is who you were before, before Christ has worked in your heart. The brutal, brutal aspects. So, I'm impatient with you. You haven't conformed to an ideal I have. I see in your life, ah, gee, could a person be more impolite? Could a person just be any more selfish? Could someone be that thoughtless? Like, this is new heights of thoughtlessness. Could anybody be any more difficult to live with? I need this reminder. Like, how do I factor in that I'm a sinner here. Desperately in need of Christ's grace. Not just in the past, but presently. So God nowhere has designated me as the shot caller of the universe where I just call every shot. That's not my designation. It's amazing when I, when I feel pride, like this passage says, the more I'm walking in pride, the more likely I am to be impatient. I don't think we should just stop and look at ourselves in the mirror only seeing a sinner. Because if we're in Christ, this says more. Look at verse 12. So he, he then says, put then on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Just as you reflect on those first few verses, 
You're holy and beloved. You are loved by God. I mean, so we, we know God loves the world, all seven billion people on the planet. But there's a special way that he speaks of loving his children, his sons and daughters, whom he has saved, who he has rescued, who is, he has entered into a new covenant relationship with. And this is the way he talks. They're chosen. They're holy. They're being made righteous. They are beloved. They are loved by me. And, and it makes a difference. It's, it makes all the difference in the world to know that you are loved by God that this is a primary identifier. So 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, one of the first things it says about love is love is patient. And so this is what we know. God is patient because God is love. And we see Christ's love demonstrated to us as he forms us even more and more in his image. I need this reminder. I am loved by God. How does that deal with my impatience? I'll tell you what, when you know you are loved unconditionally, even on a human plane, it just has a way. Like saying, you know, that really doesn't matter because I know this person loves me. I know they're for me. I can handle, you know, this, that, and the other because I know that I am loved. And if you feel that on a human plane, how much more should it move the needle in our hearts to say, we are loved by God? What did I do to deserve this? I only contributed my sin. Man, a truckload of minor offenses can be dumped immediately. If I just realize I am loved by God, what do these things matter? That love isn't just a theoretical love. That love was acted upon. It says in verse 13, we're to forgive. But this is the measure to which we forgive. We forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. On the cross... Father, forgive them. I don't even know what they're doing. How long-suffering is our Lord? He's that patient. What does this do for our soul that something that could be held against me has been released, has been let go, a record of debt with its legal demands has been canceled? We need help in dealing with our impatience, ongoing help. And, and, and what will help us most is not just, you know, like, well, more willpower. Gee, I need to be more, more patient. That's what I'll do. I'll, I'll just work harder at it. We need more than that. We need God to change our hearts and, and let us see, let us see a, a vision of who he is and what matters for eternity. See a vision of who we are. Yes, we're sinners, but we're deeply loved by God and forgiven by Jesus Christ. And all that begins to undercut any justification I could come up with why I would be impatient with you when God has been so patient with me. How could I wallow in my impatience, feeling very entitled to do that, you know? Because I've worked so hard or I deserve better. How can I punish people for not measuring up to my standards? When I own, not just acknowledge, but I own what Christ has done for me. It just changes. Changes our heart. God does this deep work of grace. None of us have arrived. That's why Galatians would talk about patience like this. So the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God's Holy Spirit living in you is love, joy, peace, patience. So when God's Holy Spirit goes to work in you, some new things that are going to come out of that heart We can talk about the fruit that is going to be produced. 
The way Colossians talks about it also is it's like a coat that needs to be put on. And what verse 12 says is put on them as God's chosen ones. Put on these qualities. Put on mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Put them on. So yes, it's a fruit that's, that's growing that we cultivate, but it's also something we put on. So this isn't, this isn't something foreign to us. This is God's grace coming to us and says, you are chosen, you are holy, you are loved. Put on then this way of acting, this way of treating others. You see, when I get a good grasp on those things, now I'm ready to move to others. Now I can take a fresh look at others and recognize, what do I do with others? I'm called to love them. That's exactly what verse 14 said. We're above all these things. We're we are to put on love. We're to recognize that, that love is what binds us in perfect harmony. It's not God's will that his church be divided. It's not God's will that, that one or two individuals be separated, that families be separated. No, actually what we're told to do is we are we're told to bear with one another. I love the way one translation says, it says like make allowance for others. So in verse 13, bear with one another. What does it mean to make some allowance for others? What does it mean to bear with one another? So that means they may be blocking you getting your way. That may mean they don't conform to my ideal. That may mean they express themselves in less than perfect ways. And in the midst of that, I can bear with them. I can suffer long. So I, I want to throw a flag. Well, what, what if there's like sin that needs to be addressed? You say, well, there's verses for that. And we could talk about that at another time. But can we, can we stay here on what it means for you, for me, to bear with someone, to make allowance for someone? Make allowance for what? Make allowance for them to be human and have limitations? I sure hope you make allowance for me to be a human and to have limitations. Make allowance for them to be a work in progress. Not totally sanctified yet. Not looking totally like Jesus yet. But a lot different even than where, where they were. Make allowance. Bear with one another. To, the, make allowance for them to have you know, like decent motives even if they're not perfect. Make allowance for someone to really want the best for you. Make allowance that they, they may not have meant that personally. Even though it would be very easily easy to take it that way. Bear with one another. You say, well, how do we do that? Well, only, only because we know this is, this is exactly what Christ has done for us. He suffered long with us. Verse 13 and verse 14 encourage us to forgive one another. Forgive each other. I think this is the essence of loving like bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Of course, if there's a need to work out an issue, by all means, I'm not closing that off. But there are just there's tons of things where I need to forgive. And the Greek is so clear on the word forgive. You know what it means to let go? It means to relinquish the opportunity. Maybe you say, it's not an opportunity, it's the right I have to get even. And to let that go. To relinquish the opportunity or the right you feel, to hash through it again and again and again. To relinquish your right, or even your opportunity, to stew on it, to keep this detailed list of wrongs. That's amazing. People have amazing memories. Never more so 
And when they can catalog a list of times, I mean, they can go back to when they were seven years old and eight and nine and 10 and 11 and 12 and begin to catalog every little slight, every minor offense. And, and every time you say, that, that surely isn't a big deal here, right? But then there's 15 more that they can come up with on a moment's notice. I can come up with on a moment's notice. Forgive each other because that's exactly what Christ has done for you. I don't think I'm going out on a limb here saying in the next four weeks especially, much need for patience. Let's not talk about four weeks. Let's talk about four years, the rest of our lives. God might grow us in patience. We need a fresh mindset. That only comes, that only comes through what God has done for us. I read this in a letter that John Newton, so John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, and a letter he wrote he kind of summed up our, our condition very, very well, and I, I just want to leave us with this this morning. It says, imagine, imagine a company of travelers fall into a pit. One of them gets a passenger to draw him out. Now, he should not be angry with the rest for falling in nor because they are not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity. A man truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were open, would take a stick and beat every blind man he met. How in the world can we grow in our patience with each other? only by recognizing that the Lord has shown supreme patience to us. I ask you to bow your head. In a moment, uh, Jim Manning's going to come and close our, our worship service. I, I'd like to just take a couple minutes, though, and just reflect on some questions. So where do we need to repent? Where's our record lesson stellar? Where do you not just need to wallow in I'm a terrible person. I'll never do any better. Where do you need to find grace to help you in your repentance? Where can you begin to show grace to others? How can we hardwire a new way of thinking and responding into our lives? Let's, let's take these things to our, the Lord and ask for his help.